early fall in 1918, just two months prior to the eventual armistice that would bring the war to end all wars, World War I, to a close, when in early September a soldier went on sick call at Camp Devens in Massachusetts, which at the time housed 45,000 men. He was diagnosed with cerebrospinal meningitis because of the abrupt fulmination of symptoms that overwhelmed the patient. These symptoms and the swift severity seemed to preclude the possibility of influenza. At the time, the terms flu, influenza, or the grip were used to diagnose a generalized collection of respiratory infection symptoms. Fever, headache, fatigue, all symptoms of meningitis as well, along with cough, runny nose, and sore throat. It was a miserable experience, to be sure, but not often requiring more than bed rest and patience. It was not even a reportable illness for most doctors to their local health boards. After all, it was a catch-all term that was practically interchangeable with a cold. But the next day, a dozen more men showed up at the Camp Devons Hospital, all with similar symptoms, giving pause for the medical officers and cause to question the original diagnosis. By the end of September 1918, Nearly 13,000 cases of influenza had been reported at Camp Devons, of which nearly 2,000 had evolved to hospitalized cases of pneumonia. By the 23rd of that month, just 16 days after the first soldier exhibited symptoms, 66 men had died. Autopsies showed thin, frothy, bloody fluid filled their lungs, in the book America's Forgotten Pandemic, the author interjects the statement, quote, No other influenza before or since has had such a propensity for pneumonic complications, and pneumonia kills. Even the most seasoned and stoic of pathologists that were given the task of making sense of this field of sickness and death found it difficult to steel themselves against this scene before them. There were those even so bold as to contemplate and utter a terrible possibility meant to conjure all the fear and horror they felt. A plague. This time, part three of our discussion on pandemic fears, we are getting to the root of the modern zeitgeist of pandemic fear. The 1918 influenza outbreak, known commonly as the Spanish flu, blamed for anywhere from 20 to 50 million deaths. The global outbreak followed on the heels of World War I and sweeping the globe in three distinct waves. All but forgotten for half a century, this pandemic outbreak has become the rallying cry for medical practice, biofarm research, and social debates that divide the public with ever-increasing accusation, fear, and vitriol on either side. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. This time, we continue our discussion on pandemic mania. 
and we are getting to the heart of the matter, the reason for the season, the baseline by which all modern outbreaks are weighed and measured, the Spanish flu of 1918. Now, just as a warning, this episode is going to be itself split, so we will have a part four that will finish up our whole discussion of pandemic fears and panic. I did this for a couple of reasons. One, it, it and probably first and foremost, the situation going on with current events and the COVID-19 uh, disease means that there's been a lot of renewed interest and new discovery of the podcast as people are looking for information. I wanted to make sure that this was here uh, to continue to provide this discussion and help people understand what's going on better because this particular topic has become very applicable to current events. The second part is that, well, uh, this is a, a podcast that is really a single-person show. I am the researcher, the host, the writer, the editor, and producer. And uh, I just simply did not want to delay getting an episode out as working through it. And as I've talked about before, there is so much information with this topic. And it is so interesting. So this time, we are going to cover the history of the Spanish flu and everything that happened. And then, leaving that there, we will move forward next time with a discussion on some of the uh, some of the modern understandings of flu, some of the realities of what's going on, and putting it all into perspective. So with that said, let's get going. Let me first credit the primary source of the discussion today, and in fact, the source of the story relayed at the top of the episode. America's Forgotten Pandemic, the Influenza of 1918. Second edition by author Alfred W. Crosby. It was first published uh, under a different title, Epidemic and Peace, 1918. And back in 1976, it was republished later under the current title um, in 1989. And again with a second edition in 2003. Now, I preface with all the publication history because... As with many publications, information is updated and revised with time. Virology, as a field of study, was at the time of publication, and I guess you could say still is, in a relative infancy. So even though this book is dated and does not reflect all the research that has occurred even since the second edition, it's not outdated especially with respect to the historical information it provides. In the weeks of researching this topic, Crosby's book kept surfacing as either a, a reference for writers or as a top recommendation within lists of books on the topic of the Spanish flu. The book is aptly titled, as it seems that this is one of the works that actually helped to bring the Spanish flu back from the brink of obscurity and rise to a <clears throat> epidemic proportions? <laughs> oh, puns. I've used other more recent sources as well, which I will use to 
interject more updated information regarding the influenza information proper. But that is not the true beauty and value of Crosby's work. America's Forgotten Pandemic is a journey through the final months of and subsequent diplomatic efforts following World War I. While some of his conclusions are foregone, based on a, a clearly established preemptive position of regarding the viral culprit, the historical journey is no less fascinating. As the title implies, it's largely focused on the experience through the lens of an American perspective, though the global impact is not ignored nor omitted. Let's first begin by understanding what exactly the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 was. As we go through this, there will be plenty of facts, figures, dates, and percentages. Don't worry about following the details. The key, just as when we discussed COVID-19, is to register the enormous scale to which the influenza outbreak is attributed. The Spanish flu is more accurately labeled the 1918 influenza pandemic. It is widely accepted to be a pandemic involving the H1N1 influenza virus, a precursor to the H1N1 that we are familiar with today. It received the moniker Spanish flu as a result of press reporting received from then-neutral Spain when much of the news in Europe and the United States was minimized and censored under the auspices of morale during the war, unrestricted reporting in Spain presented a false impression of epidemic severity in contrast to other countries, thus establishing the popularity of the name Spanish flu, especially in the United States. It's estimated to have infected a quarter of the world population, then at 1.8 billion. The death toll is as broad and uncertain as other aspects of this outbreak, with estimates from 20 to 50 million. Some even attribute up to 100 million, though that requires lumping pretty much every potential respiratory and secondary infection mortality under the blame of the flu. Though historical study and epidemiological research has shed some light on the possible causes and details of this, well, expansive and deadly disease, much still remains unknown. The point of origin remains unknown, since the disease seems to have surfaced almost simultaneously in multiple regions, with theories pointing to China the United States, or France. Likewise, the details of the virus, which caused the resulting pandemic to appear extremely virulent and deadly, are in dispute. While some research shows the virus itself to be a deadly strain, other analysis indicates that the infection was no more aggressive or severe than previous influenza events. Wikipedia expands on this contradiction and contraindication, stating that this would then attribute the high mortality to the state of the global population at the time, 
experiences with malnourishment, crowded medical camps, congestion and diversity on battlefields, and expansive travel and mobility of previously isolated populations, all of which resulted in the possible development of a bacterial superinfection. Now the story of sudden outbreak which occurred at Camp Devens in September of 2018, though extreme, is reflective of the speed at which disease spread and the confusion that ensued. With an infection count of 13,000 soldiers in a single month, it becomes very difficult to remember that this recounting is only of events that took place at a single military facility in the U.S. and not the front lines. It's important to note, as Crosby does in the book, that the sanitary conditions of such facilities as Camp Devons were not neglected. Sanitation was of high priority for the U.S. Army, with medical officers tasked often the duty of inspection and troubleshooting. Crosby emphasizes, quote, the job wasn't glorious, but it was a very important one, because in all previous wars, more American soldiers had died of disease than in combat, and history would surely repeat itself unless constant and careful inspection of the camps were made, end quote. Ironically, that fact is lost on the rest of the book as, as well. It's forgotten by those that cite the notion that the Spanish flu killed more than were to die in combat in World War I, as though this were the first time in history that war and disease had ever crossed paths. Suspicions at Camp Devons as the source and origin of this extreme flu were considered. Everything from pneumonic plague, which had ravaged China from 1910 to 1917, to direct correlation with the war and the chemical and biological warfare being waged, Crosby ruminated. Never before had such quantities of explosives been expended. Never before had so many men lived in such filth for so long. Never before had so many human corpses been left to rot above ground, and never before had anything so fiendish as mustard gas been released into the atmosphere in large amounts. The doctors and researchers in 1918 were better prepared than any predecessors before to face an epidemic. In just the last hundred years prior, more advancements in treatment, vaccination, prevention, and hygiene had been made than the previous 1,000 years. Yet, they found themselves nearly helpless against this influenza outbreak. By the end of October, over 17,000 men at Camp Devons had contracted flu or pneumonia, with almost 800 deaths attributed. Now, this story typifies the experience had by dozens, perhaps hundreds of locations across the globe, not just the United States. The pandemic hit the U.S. in three waves, first in the spring, then a much harder second wave in the fall, 
such as what befell Camp Devens. The third came in early 1919. The United States currently attributes 665,000 deaths to the Spanish flu. The waves came for other countries as well, though. The severity and timing varied. In New Zealand, the pandemic didn't arrive until uh, September of 1918, and that proved mild. With the second wave in late October-November, that was both more deadly and more infectious. For India, whose population had been pulled into the front lines through British conscription, the first wave of infection arrived in June of 1918. The second wave, which arrived in September, was so drastically more severe that symptoms were barely similar to the initial wave. India attributes the deaths of 6% of their population to the pandemic. That equates to 18 million people. European countries had a loss of 1% of their population from the pandemic, a count of 2.6 million people. In the Pacific Islands, cases were recorded well through the end of 1920, with varying degrees of severity and mortality. It's almost hard to believe that this could become forgotten by the population of the U.S., or any population for that matter. But in truth, there was plenty else to which people turned their attention. To try to wrap our heads around this, and do so in a manner that won't have me keeping you here for hours and hours of history, we will discuss uh, each wave of the pandemic and highlight the key world events at play. Now, this is not going to be exhaustive by any means, but hopefully we'll put the flu and its ability to spread in proper context. Let's get into the first wave. In 1918, peace was nearly at hand, but precarious. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson had unveiled his Principles for Peace settlement in January. By March, though, the Russians had dropped out of the war, and the German troops had amassed against the French and English, and the Allies were clamoring for ramp-up of U.S. troops. It was in these conditions that the first wave of pandemic began, running from roughly March to June of 1918. The Germans were executing an apparent strategy to split the French and British forces, overrunning nearly 1,250 square miles and barraging Paris with a continuous shelling campaign. The French and British troops were tasked with holding the line as much as possible until reinforcements of American troops could arrive. The United States responded with deployment of 84,000 troops in March and another 118,000 in April. The world, at war, held its breath, and it's not surprising that no one noticed that flu-like symptoms were surfacing more than usual. 
In the U.S., Crosby mentions that the spring epidemic isn't even mentioned in the 1918 volumes of the Journal of the American Medical Association. In fact, influenza isn't even a reportable disease for health departments in most areas at this point. Because of this, the only way to really associate the Spanish flu to recorded deaths by pneumonia is to review symptoms leading up to the death. This is an era before antibiotics, so pneumonia was a common and well-understood cause of death. Cases surfaced in the U.S. in March, spreading heavily through troop facilities and encampments, as well as other crowded facilities, such as prisons and manufacturing plants that were stacked full of workers. It appeared in France by April, most likely carried over by U.S. troops, then jumping to British lines. By May, flu-like symptoms and pneumonia were hitting the German lines. All forces felt the impact of sickened troops, with every country blaming everyone else for this distinctively quick onset of incapacitating illness and fatally severe pneumonia. The wave of flu-like symptoms proved more virulent than previously experienced in most areas, but it moved in and out quickly through those areas. It did not generate a mortality rate much higher than was typically expected of pneumonia, though. Additionally, even with areas where it was being tracked and reported, such as the military, other issues, such as epidemics of diarrhea, occupied troops and medical personnel as well. The summer months of June and July brought this new illness to other areas of the world, most likely through troop movements, such as the Caribbean, the Panama Canal Zone, India, and other global regions. Really, the most notable aspect of this period is the fact that it wasn't recognized as notable at all. Chalk it up to a unique period of time where the movement of people vastly outpaced the movement of information. second wave, kicking off in August, began simultaneously in three locations. Brest, France, Freetown in Sierra Leone, and Boston, Massachusetts. Crosby, in the book, muses whether these explosions were three manifestations of a single mutation of the virus, which originated in one of three ports and almost simultaneously traveled to the other two, or were Three different simultaneous mutations will never be known. All we can say is that the first hypothesis is improbable, and the second is extremely improbable. Perhaps the truth is somewhere entirely different. If you're wondering why Sierra Leone, Freetown was the capital of the then British colony and a heavily trafficked port in West Africa. Brest, for its role, was the chief disembarkation port of the expeditionary forces, with nearly 800,000 American troops having come into France through Brest, along with troops from dozens of other nations. With this wave, the illness found its way to New Zealand. The story relayed at the start of the episode begins at this point. It conveys the level of severity felt with this most lethal wave, some of which was due to the dichotomy of public reaction 
In the U.S., the population was actually taking note of this epidemic and beginning to take precautions, even if flawed and based on the concept of a bacterial infection. In contrast, as the final push toward ending the war took shape, caution was thrown to the wind by a public that might otherwise have taken greater care. In September, Washington, D.C. formally disclosed to the media that the Spanish flu had arrived as a real public health threat. But that same month, Crosby says that 13 million men lined up around the U.S., crammed together, coughing and sneezing, to register for the draft. The U.S. Surgeon General provided guidance to recognize the disease and simply recommended bed rest, good food, salts of quinine, and aspirin for the sick. Well, more on aspirin, uh, on aspirin in uh, Part 4, but we'll get back to that. On September 16, the first large offensive against German lines began. This also began the futility of military leaders attempting to prevent spread of the disease. On September 26, 1918, the AEF, the American Expeditionary Forces, moved into German lines in a massive offensive, overshadowing all other news reporting. During that same week, the disease spread across the U.S., and even with mortality rates unknown within civilian cases, the impact to military installations reflected the potential seriousness. The world was at war in Europe, while civilians were at war with disease in their hometowns. While part of the federal government was moving swiftly to tackle this aggressive threat of illness, the other part was seemingly feeding it. In the U.S., a bond drive in October entailed the meeting of thousands to rallies and town halls, as well as door-to-door -door solicitations. Pretty much just about everything one could recommend to spread an airborne disease. This time, of course, the pandemic lasted for months. Now, the experience was not monolithic or consistent. The book goes through several chapters explaining the unfolding uh, by various cities. And we won't walk through them, so I again recommend the read. But it does give a good idea of how this move through, uh, through the U.S., you know, spreading across uh, the different severities and what was going on. Remember, all this was happening on a grand scale. Just as there were stories in major U.S. cities, there were stories of illness and disease occurring on transport ships headed to Europe. In some cases, the disease went with them, while in others, it seemed like it was already there when they arrived. Through to November 11, 1918, Armistice Day, illness and disease appears to have taken as many lives on the war front as the combat itself. Every nation was affected. This is where we get to a point that Crosby makes, but I think fails to reach the proper conclusion. He notes, The greatest confusion grew out of the existence of two epidemics at once, influenza and dysentery, or were those two just syndromes of the same disease? If the latter guess is true, then there is such a disease as intestinal influenza, which most experts will heartily deny. Flu, they say, is a disease resulting from an infection of the respiratory tract, not the uh, elementary canal. The patient may have loose stools for a great number of reasons, but it is extremely unlikely that the reason for the presence of influenza virus in cells of the epithelium of his bronchi. 
Yet many thousands of soldiers of all nationalities in France and elsewhere in 1918 insisted that their trouble was intestinal flu. For instance, cases had flu, pneumonia, and diarrhea. The pairing of intestinal and pulmonary influenza in Paris persuaded many Parisians that the malady was really cholera. Thousands fighting in the Argonne Forest had what was usually described as dysentery and not intestinal flu. But lab tests turned up none of the amoebas or bacilli normally blamed for dysentery. This is when we get to the third wave, which occurred in the spring of 1918, which was notable for the potential impact to the Paris Peace Accords. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was arguably the most popular man in the world in November 1918, carrying with him ideas such as his 14 points for peace and the conception of the League of Nations. He was front and center with his arrival in Paris as war-weary leaders of ally nations and central powers turned to him for an end to war. Yet, it seemed that the greater influence to politics of war can be found in the pandemic. Illness affected diplomats and negotiators on all sides, including several of the key players for the U.S. that were in support of the vision detailed by Wilson. This illness led to absences at key events, and potentially crippled the ability to garner support for the League of Nations within the U.S. legislature. From November of 18 through April of 1919, the Atlantic was full of soldiers returning from war and diplomats traveling to Paris to ensure that those soldiers would not need to turn around. President Wilson managed to avoid illness, while many of his advisors and key supporters succumbed during this period. The attempted peace dragged on longer than most had hoped. Oh, and the flu had returned to Paris in that time as well. In the afternoon, April 3rd, 1919, all that changed. President Wilson, while beginning the day seemingly healthy, began to wane. By that evening, he was experiencing convulsive coughing, high fever, and cramping with severe diarrhea. Of course, he was diagnosed with influenza. It was in this state in the following days that Wilson worked through the peace conference with intermediaries and heavily distracted by physical ailment. His vision for peace fell to petty politics. Reparations were demanded of Germany with no limits or maximums. By the time the Versailles Treaty was being printed in May, it predestined an untenable path that would ultimately lead to World War II. The failure of the U.S. to support the League of Nations ostensibly sealed that fate. Now, this is obviously a U.S.-centric account of the pandemic, and as mentioned before, illness and death attributed to the Spanish flu extended well into 1920, and then some throughout various parts of the world. But this is where we get to the big question, and this is how we'll end the episode. Why was it so lethal? What has made this so severe? The death toll has grown over the years from 
20 million to 30 million to 50 million to 100 million. It's important to note that much of the basis for these increasing estimates is something as simple as evaluation of census and population data in comparison to average rates of death and tallies of combat deaths from World War I. We're not even going to argue the validity of those counts, but rather caution that attribution of deaths to the flu without respect to context of other factors presents a false severity to the influenza virus of 1918. All right, that will do it for this episode. We will finish the discussion of the Spanish flu next time. Thanks again for joining me today. Now remember, if you're enjoying these episodes, please share them with others. And don't forget to click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. Do you have any thoughts on this and other perspectives that you'd like to add uh, as we discuss this pandemic pandemonium? You can email me at contact at conspiracytheoriology.com or, of course, find me on the socials at TheoriologyPod. All the info can be found at conspiracytheoriology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon and links to our merchandise store. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoriology.